Hey gang, welcome back to another episode of Ranching Reboot, the podcast that explores regenerative agriculture, sustainable ranching, and the people behind those movements. In today's episode, we talk to Jared Sorensen, a third-generation rancher from Elko, Nevada, who shares his insights on regenerative ranching and his core principles that promote mindful and profitable decision-making. Jared and I also discuss managing in the West, wild horse management, the cost of inputs for commodity farming, and much more. Tune in to hear this thought-provoking conversation that challenges paradigms and offers a fresh perspective on land management and agriculture. Hey, Ranching Reboot fans, are you passionate about regenerative agriculture and want to support our podcast? Join our Patreon community today and get exclusive access to bonus content, merch rewards, and more. Your support will help us continue to bring you fresh stories from new faces in agriculture, as well as the tales of industry veterans who are fighting against what's wrong with our food system. Plus, you'll be joining a community of like-minded fans who love ranching, farming, and regenerative agriculture just as much as you do. Also, be sure to join our Discord server, where you can connect with other fans, discuss current events, and past podcast episodes. Our Discord community is the perfect place to share your thoughts and ideas, get feedback on your ranching projects, and learn from other experts in the field. Don't miss out on this amazing opportunity to connect with fellow ranchers and support our podcast at the same time. Join our Patreon community and Discord server today, and let's reboot your thinking about farming, ranching, food systems, and the people that operate them. Confession time. I have a very hard time eating. I'm a picky eater, and it's been a struggle my whole life to fuel my body properly. When I got curious about nutrition, I asked my doctor about vitamins, and that led to a conversation about where vitamins come from. He didn't know, and I realized I needed to make a change, so I started searching for a better source of high-quality nutritional supplements to spend my hard-earned dollars on. I reached out to several companies, and I am proud to announce a partnership with a company I can stand behind. Introducing One Earth Health Grass-Fed Beef Organ Supplements. Organ meats are the most nutrient-dense foods we can eat and have been uniquely treasured by our ancestors. Organ meats are not only nutrient-dense, but they're also a great source of essential vitamins and minerals. The liver is packed with vitamin A, K, and E, while the heart is a great natural source of COQ10. The spleen contains four times the amount of iron as the liver, and the kidney is a great source of vitamin B complex. The pancreas supports gut health. I can't tell you how much better I feel since I started taking these supplements. When I don't take them, I have much less energy and focus. Just a few capsules every morning gives me everything my body needs to thrive. We are built to eat diverse diets that include whole animals and organ meats. We have lost our perspective on food and its purpose. Give yourself the gift of radical health. Give yourself One Earth Health grass-fed beef organ supplements. Visit www.oneearthhealth.com forward slash Brian Alexander or just click the link in the show notes. Jared Sorensen from Elko, Nevada. Welcome to Ranching Reboot, sir. How are you this fine day? Hey, I'm doing great, Brian. It's a privilege. It's an honor to be here with you and, and to be on this podcast. Thanks thanks for agreeing to do this. Well, thank you for doing it, making time to sit down and talk to me today. So um, I guess we can just kind of jump right in. You're the first guest we've had from Nevada. Yeah, well, um, Nevada does exist. You know, it's not just what you see uh, when you think about Nevada, Las Vegas. We actually are in the northeast corner. Um, it, it, if you looked, you're looking out our window right now, um, we're covered in snow. We have been since before Thanksgiving. Our operation sits at about 6,000 feet and the valley floor goes up to 10.5. Um, so it, it would be similar to like the Wasatch Front in Utah, 
you know, we're closer to Utah and Idaho than we are to Las Vegas. And, and so if you think Nevada, you think desert dry cactus and, and that's not at all where we are. We're, we're high desert. We're part of the great basin. If it wasn't for Reno, Las Vegas and Elko, would there be anybody living in Nevada? Not much. No, <laughs> no. And, uh, you could probably give Reno and Las Vegas to California and we'd be maybe a little better off and in the way we vote, but, um, uh, no, it is, it is very rural. Yeah. So Elko is, Elko is definitely grown, but still it's a very small community and, uh, you know, you don't have to worry about traffic jams or anything like that where we live. Not having to deal with traffic. That's just something that's so nice. <laughs> I don't know if I could ever go back to living and living in a big city. So for you listeners out there, like when I was in the military, I lived in Norfolk, Virginia beach area. Like, and everybody in the military pretty much has to be to work at the same time. So it's like, there's this giant race of everybody trying to get in, you know, from the suburbs and the outlying areas back to the base to get into work. Well, it like, if you left at five you'd be there at like six Oh five. But if you left at six, you'd be there at seven fifteen. It was yeah. kind of one of those deals. Like, I'm over that. The only traffic jams that I want to run into on my way to work, or maybe one of my neighbors moving cattle down the road or across the road. That's the only traffic jam that I can tolerate these days. Yep. <laughs> so, yep, tell me about. Uh, has your family always been there in Elko, or is that uh, is that where Jared landed? Uh, so I'm the third generation here. My um, grandfather started out in the sheep business in southern Utah and then moved to Nevada um, after the Taylor Grazing Act came into existence when would that have been like the 1930s ish um, and then landed here in Elko in the uh, late 1940s and so uh, the operation has evolved and changed quite a bit from 100% sheep to now or to hundred percent cattle. And then when we sold off a BLM allotment, um, we sold the cow herd and now largely we just custom graze. And so we, uh, we operate kind of the lay of the land a little bit is on about 14,000 acres that we own. 10% um, of that is irrigated, flood irrigated. We don't do a lot of farming, uh, mostly graze. We can put up a little hay. Um, hay. Hay prices right now are extremely expensive here in this part of the world because of the drought. And uh, and now we're in a very severe winter. Um, so we we do hay that. Sometimes we'll bale graze. Sometimes we'll stockpile it. Um, but yes, custom grazing is our main enterprise. We also raise and direct market grass-fed beef uh, through our marketing company, Ruby Mountain Foods. And we sell into branded beef um, programs also. So our beef goes into restaurants into, uh, California and some of the metropolitan areas. And that's where our real passion lies is in raising quality food. Um, my wife also came from a ranching background, grew up here in Nevada. Uh, we got married after a brief stint in school, um, both studying animal science. My dad asked me if I would stay home that next semester after we got married to help ship the calves and we never made it back to school. But by golly, we got an education and an expensive one. So uh, we, my wife, my wife and I both love ranching and we knew from a young age that that's what we wanted to do. So we came back, we took over management of the ranch at a young age. Um, I was 23 years old when my dad left to serve a 
my dad and mom left to serve a series of missions throughout Central and South America. Okay. And uh, we started raising a family. We've now got nine kids. Two of them are married, got one grandbaby. And we are working to make it possible for that next generation to also succeed in ranching if they so choose. Very cool. You you mentioned something, uh, I believe you called it the Taylor Grazing Act. I've never heard of that. Did Can you tell me something about that? Yeah, we can talk a little bit about that, not with an extreme amount of authority, but basically in the... Um, when the pioneers came to the West, it was, uh, they, they had the Homestead Act, which you're probably familiar with, which is um, right. granting. 1882, I think, is when the Homestead Act opened up my area. So like a lot of the original deeds were filed 1883, 1884 for the original um, homestead claims were filed like 1882, 1884. 1883, 1884, at least like uh, for the property that I have. Okay. Okay. And you can date that back to the original owners then. Yeah. Um, like I, I was just looking at it the other day. So I don't live on the ranch. I live about six miles away on a separate piece of property. And uh -huh. I have, I have a copy of the abstract, like the, the whole title abstract. It's like, you know, an inch and a half thick. Um, Cause I'm at a really weird shaped corner or a little, a weird shaped piece that's like it's it's got some funny angles in it and it's been you know it, it was originally part of a quarter and then it was you know gradually whittled off from there so it's like tracing all the title has been kind of a challenge but i can trace this piece of property all the way back to the original land grant from the president like it's it's pretty cool like it's in the abstract like there's a piece of paper that looks like the president's signatures on it for the title conveyance from president of the united states to i forget the guy's name but uh yeah that's that's kind of neat. Anyway, I'm sorry. Taylor Grazing. Uh, so, yeah. So the Homestead Act um, predated the Taylor Grazing Act. And I think we're probably more familiar with the Homestead Act, whereby, you know, basically you were granted um, 160 acres, I think is what it started out with. When they started doing that here in Nevada, they quickly found out 160 acres could barely support a jackrabbit in most of Nevada. And so they upped that to a full section. So 640 acres. Um, huge turnover of people, you know, people would come, they would try to farm, they tried to dry land farm, uh, did limited irrigation. Basically the only homesteads that survived were up against the base of the mountains where they had snowpack in the winter, which worked as a reservoir that could be metered off. Um, irrigation ditches were built and they could, they could flood irrigate and put in some meadows. And so that's, that's, the base of the property that we that we own um, would be from land that was homesteaded, uh, but you know probably I should know this. I don't know how many how many families properties we would represent, but three or four at least, and then quite a bit more in addition to that. So, so the Taylor Grazing Act came into effect, um, and I don't know the year. You can probably Google it and find out real quick, but. Um, but my grandpa was running uh, sheep in common on the Arizona Strip down in Southern Utah in Arizona. And when that came into place, um, again, it was out of necessity. A lot of times we cuss the existence of the BLM and the Forest Service. But the fact of the matter of it was, is it was first come first serve. And there was extreme overgrazing that was happening by the cattle and sheep producers. Um, 
who got there first. They had the right to it. They had to defend that right often by force. And, uh, you know, there was the cattle and the sheep wars that you hear about. And, and those were real. Um, my grandpa worked for an uncle, took sheep for pay, built up a herd of sheep during the Great Depression. When the Depression was over, he had sheep. Um, the Taylor Grazing Act came into effect, which said if you either have private land or water rights, you can lay claim to AUMs on the public land, uh, which would be BLM administered or Bureau of Land Management administered land at that point. So that's when the, the BLM came into existence. My grandpa did not have those, um, either water rights or private land. And so he took the sheep and went um, north from there and eventually eventually landed here in Nevada and in Elko County where we're at now. Okay. Interesting. I'll, I'll have to look up that Taylor Grazing Act and, and kind of research into that. Um, probably, probably not real applicable. Where are you at, Brian? I'm in South Central Kansas. Okay. Yeah. So that you, you probably have no public land for speak of to speak of. I mean, BLM is probably not even in existence there. Right. I don't even think BLM has an office in Kansas. Uh, there's, there's only a couple real small uh, pieces of federal land. Um, I think Cimarron grassland out in Southwest Kansas, like, and that's most of it. Uh, yeah. There's just not, there's just not a federal you know, a federal land management presence. There's not U.S. Forest Service. There's not BLM. Those are just things we don't have to deal with here in Kansas. Because, yeah, you know, the, the common misconception is, yeah, Kansas is flat and it's full of wheat farms. That that was mostly true, you know, back in the '80s before you know a lot of the corn, cotton, and soybeans started coming in. Now that's it's you know it, it's a lot of commodity farms, and yeah, Kansas is flat because people just drive through and they don't get off the main roads. Like you don't put, I, if it's flat through most, through a part of the state, that's where you put your main roads. Like you don't build yeah. your interstate highways through the hills if you have a choice, right? Or railroads, <laughs> or, right? Yeah. So I'm in a little part that we call the Red Hills and I'm kind of in the Northeast part of that. Okay. Uh, most of the Red Hills extend out to the west uh, a couple hundred miles, and they go down to the south into the, into Oklahoma, like northwest Oklahoma, Oklahoma Panhandle areas, and northeast Texas Panhandle is kind of it's kind of the 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 same, I guess the same grass, the same geology, same soil for the most part. Yeah, it makes sense. So, so it is a different context there, definitely. I mean, we're both ranching. Um, and here, you know, a lot, lot more vast, a lot more acres per cow here than obviously where you're at. And, uh, and it is, so Nevada is 90, I think 3% uh, public land administered by the BLM and Forest Service. And so the, the private land, again, generally is the more prime land that was originally homesteaded, where the homesteaders could actually survive. Um, everybody else, they just, you know, they just left. They just couldn't survive here in these harsh, harsh conditions. I think it was a lot the same, a lot kind of the same scenario here in the Red Hills and in the Plains. You know, a lot of folks came from the East, staked their claim. I'm going to have yep. chickens, I'm going to have goats, I'm going to have yard, I'm going to have a homestead. You know, <laughs> kind of similar to what a lot of folks these days in cities are thinking. Anyway, um, 
and like I was saying, you know, the Homestead Act opened up this area like late 1882, 1883. And there was a, okay, so I'm thinking of a community that's on a neighboring ranch. It was called uh, Hebron or Little Jerusalem. So mm-hmm. there was a guy that came out in 1884 and scouted it and said, this is really good. So he went back over to, I think it was uh, Germany, and he was Jewish. And he recruited, like, got this relatively sizable group of, of Jewish folks to come out here to southern Kansas and start a community. And they did. And I think they were they were spread over you know, several hundred acres. But, you know, there was, you know, I hesitate to even mention a number. There were numerous houses over several hundred acres. It was enough to actually be a proper community. So they showed up in 1885 which was a pretty decent year until the winter of 1885-1886, which was horrible. I mean, it was bitter, bitter cold, lots and lots of snow. And then in 1886, it didn't rain. Uh So you can imagine all these people, they show up and they're like, you know, they're told it's a paradise. The grass, you know, grass up to the the back of a horse. Um, And then they have one of them, a a horrible winter. on record, like feet of snow, just weeks and weeks and weeks of sub-zero. And then to turn around in 1886, and it just didn't rain. Um, A lot of them packed up and left. Matter of fact, almost all of them, by the end of 1886, almost all of that community of Hebron was gone. All went somewhere else. So I think that story has been, I think that story could be told probably in a hundred different places across the plains between where I'm at, where you're at, Montana, down to Texas. Yep. Not everybody was tough enough. Or maybe maybe the smart ones already left and left the left those of us that are just kind of too dumb to quit to hang on and do it for another few generations. Not real sure about that one yet, but. Uh... <laughs> or could it could it be? I mean, does the land have a a carrying capacity, and we just exceeded that carrying capacity? I, that's it. I, yeah. I definitely think that's it. And, you know, carrying capacity is related to rainfall. And that's not just for cattle. That's for people as well. Like we, we talked, we've talked about this on several previous episodes about water and water availability. And, man, I feel like that there's, you're not in the Colorado River Basin, but I feel like there's a huge, huge wreck coming in the Colorado River Basin with, with irrigation water. Like there, there's yeah. going to have to be a reckoning of the usage of irrigation water coming from the mountains. You know, whether it's, and I'm not, I'm not going to pick on you today about it, but uh, <laughs> I, it just seems like some of these policies that we had when we settled the West, yeah, they worked and they were simple. But now that, you know, we've built cities like Las Vegas, we've built cities like Reno. Reno's probably not so bad, but Las Vegas, all right, we're going to have a city with a couple million people in a desert and we're going to rely on water that falls as snow a thousand miles away to run down this river and then we can drink it. Yeah. That doesn't sound like that was really effective long-term planning, but I don't think they thought about it. Right. Yeah. And I think so much of what we do is that way though, isn't it? That we, we don't have a long vision for what we are truly creating. We don't think is like, the Native Americans do um, kind of that philosophy of center seven generations. 
you know, how is this going to affect our great, 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 great grandchildren? Um, it's just what works now and you build the policy around what works now. And sometimes that's based on, um, honestly, based on the mistakes of prior generations, such as the Taylor Grazing Act, right? And now we're straddled or we're, yeah, we're strapped with this, which doesn't fit in today's management with the knowledge and tools and the complexity of nature it doesn't have it's too rigid to be able to evolve to what we need today to truly be regenerative because basically it is promoting degeneration because there's the philosophy that um overgrazing is based on too many animals and it's it's animals plus time right grazing right and so to be able to change that philosophy when it's kind of written in stone has been has been hard and sometimes like many fundamental changes that takes a generation die off before the next generation can truly adopt something which is um more adaptive and more more in tune with what our current needs are so and i i think we're getting there though brian i think we are i mean if you look at uh, the number of people who are striving to be regenerative when regenerative wasn't even a word a decade ago or not that I'd heard of anyway. Um, at least now there's some, there's some awareness around that. And, and I think that um, even in, in the agencies, although I don't deal with them directly now because we don't deal with the BLM, um, there are some people who are having some great success at doing some adapt, adapt, adaptive grazing on BLM allotments. And so I just got off the phone with um, a company that's selling collars for cattle and being able to track them. And, and there are some people that are doing that effectively. And so if you can incorporate that new technology with the wisdom um, of our ancestors, with the vision for the future, then you can make good decisions right now. Yep. You said, uh, you didn't say, uh, you said that you gave up, you sold some BLM leases. Do you have any currently, or are you just, are you all on private land? We are 90% on private, private land. We do lease some private land from an absentee owner, um, which is contiguous to us. And then we have a couple of small forest service allotments. Um, but yeah, a little, just a quick backstory, um, the BLM allotment that my grandfather and father built um, became to the point that it was overrun with wild horses. And again, another act that came into existence in the 1970s, the Wild Horse and Burrow Act, thanks to Wild Horse Annie. Um, there definitely was a need to have the horses managed. Um, but the on, on our allotment, for example, largely that fell to the ranchers. And so um, did some abuse happen? Did horses get shot? Certainly they did, and I'm not for that. Um, but there wasn't an issue, and now we've created a monster which, create, which requires, I don't know what the current budget was when we sold the allotment. It was $40 million a year just to manage wild horses. I would assume it's probably three times that much now. And so you think... <clears throat> we're managing the horses 
striving to manage the range when in fact, I mean, they were like 3000% above the allotted number, maximum number out there. So basically it got to the point where there was no feed for the cattle. We couldn't have, we couldn't compete. We said, okay, we made a strategic decision. Um, just like when my father, my grandfather and I decided to sell sheep and transition to cattle, it was based on using the, the resource um, to the, to the best potential that it possessed. And, uh, and, and we saw that, you know, this was kind of fighting a losing battle. It was, it was not my battle to fight. And, uh, I still am very much involved in the wild horse issue. Um, trying to stay up to date on it. I know there's some people who have taken that on. I fully support them, especially here in Nevada, but, uh, but yeah, that's, that's kind of the backstory. So, so no, we do not have a BLM allotment anymore. Um, it was a year-round grazing allotment, great piece of country, and provided winter feed, which is very valuable, especially any year, but especially years like this when, when hay prices are high. But it was just, it was overrun with horses that we can't get rid of because there's no horse slaughter plants. They're now classified, quote, as pets. Yep. And, yeah, it, it, and the BLM let horses run on, run on it at 3,000% the stocking rate that you could run other livestock on and they probably still expected you to then they expected you to pay to manage those horses out of your pocket so you could run cattle on there but you couldn't run cattle or sheep on there because there was no grass because the horses ate it all do i have that right pretty much that's a good synopsis yeah it's a pretty good synopsis and not you know again not to point fingers of blame i mean this um there are some people that are striving to do good things with the issue um, but bottom line is policy needs to change. There needs to be an outlet for the horses. Um, I mean, just imagine, you know, what would happen to your ranch if you just removed the human element of management at some point, it would, it would reach that carrying capacity, but it has to go to the extreme, right? Right. It, it's got to go to a place where there's too many animals on the land. They overutilize the resource and they die back to some sort of equilibrium or, you know, die back to a, a sine curve that chases the productivity curve. I mean, yeah, I, I, I get it. And we don't have to spend too much time on it. Um, and, you know, I know that I know wild horses on public land is probably a, a giant can of worms. Yeah, it, it definitely is. I'm a little reluctant to go there, but it's you ask the question, so we'll <laughs> we'll answer it. Okay how would you solve the problem? And I guess maybe we can define the problem as hmm. public lands in the West are overrun with unmanaged horse herds and they're degrading and they're causing the landscape to continually degrade. How would Jared start to fix that problem? Yeah. Gives me pause because I think of all the implications that are going uh, bottom line is it has to be an act of Congress to allow the slaughter of horses. And that seems inhumane and that seems wrong to many people. And I, I truly do respect that. Um, but if they understand the true cost and the degra degradation of the natural resource that's happening, then I think maybe they could be reasoned with and they could understand that, okay, I mean, just... What happens to your computer if you just continue to import files and files and files and you don't empty the trash? Right? It gets plugged up, it gets slowed down, 
there's going to be a cost. It might be a crude analogy to what happens on the range when it's overstocked. But bottom line is, is that um, as stewards, I believe God gave us dominion over the land and over the animals. And so I believe that we're negligent if we think that the way to manage that is to artificially prop them up. And this can go back to, you know, how we manage our cow herd, right? If we're putting in too many inputs to create an artificial environment for them to succeed, there's a cost to that. And we have to balance that out. Can we, can we afford to do that cost? And we feel that cost, right? You and I feel that cost. You just told me that you had to take protein out to your cattle this morning, right? That's a cost. The challenge with the horses is, is nobody really feels that cost directly, um, if you love horses, go buy a place, adopt them, pay $300 a ton to feed them, and pretty quick you'll understand what that cost really is. And there are people that are doing that because they believe in it. And, and by all means, if you're going to do it with private dollars and you're not going to burden the taxpayers with that, you go for it and you do that. I, I think there's a reason we don't see any 10,000 acre privately held and run um, horse shelters or horse sanctuaries. I think there's a reason why. Well, they're, they're actually are probably not too far away. I know when I flew in to visit Wally Olson, they're outside of Anita. There's a couple 2,000 head. Um, they're not sanctuaries, but they're just basically holding facilities where horses come to live out their lives at the tune of probably six to eight hundred dollars a year the taxpayer funded yep to just to just go into retirement and, and live till they die and horses live a long time especially when they're on good feed and so you multiply that out over you know 20 22 year lifespan of a horse it's like how what other what other things could you be doing with those dollars right what other things could that resource be used for? And and I, I think I, I'm sure we could spend that money on some sort of social welfare program. When well, that's what we're doing. It's a social welfare program for horses. Um, you know, and we we cast that when we do it for people, but uh, but that's essentially what we're doing. So so bottom line is is there has to be an outlet. I believe, and I'll say I know this is being recorded. I believe that it does need to be slaughtered. Like why why not send that to feed people that are hungry. I'll go on record and agree with you. Just, just so nobody gets mad at just Jared. I, I agree with them. Like, I think we need to bring back horse slaughter and, and whether or not, whether or not it offends anybody like horse meat's a delicacy in a large part of the world, mm -hmm. like the Russians, the Kazakhs, like, okay. Yeah. I know Russia's probably not going to be the, the target of a whole lot of American exports these days, but they like horse meat. Okay. And there's other people in the world that eat it, even though we choose to see them as pets in this country. People like to eat them. I mean, yeah, people like to eat dogs too, right? Doesn't make them bad people. Yeah. It's just it's a different environment. It's a different culture than what we're used to. Um, Man, I could eat a horse. It'd be an awful tall order for me to eat a dog. <laughs> I'd be real hungry. <laughs> Yeah, you get hungry enough and you'll be surprised. And and so I guess bottom line, what is what is it going to take to make that change? Um, I'd rather know, feed I'd... my dog horse meat based food than corn and grain based food. 
Exactly. Why not feed that into the pet food industry, if nothing else? So, so I mean, hopefully your listeners, if nothing else, Brian, can have an awareness of some of the issues that are going on here in the West. They they think, and I, and I know I've gone to conferences and think, um, they say, well, man, you guys are so lucky. You know, you have to pay less than $2 a month to run a cow out there on the public land. Do you know what we're paying here in Kansas? I mean, what's the grazing rate right now there? What are you charging your custom grazing customers? Um, I'm not far away from a dollar and a half a day per AU for just yeah. gas and water. Yeah, so we're doing that per month, but they don't realize all the other expenses that go into it. We're out there pumping the water, maintaining the fences, blading the roads, managing not only the resource base for the cattle, it's also for the wildlife and the wild horses. And so there's, um, granted that, you know, the taxpayer dollars are doing that also to an extent on some of the improvements, but, you know, my, my dad and grandpa spent hundreds of thousands of dollars drilling wells, building fences, putting, putting in, um, planting grass and putting in seedings and doing things that still today and for generations to come will benefit fit the land that they stewarded for nearly 70 years. So hopefully that kind of answered the question. It is a complex issue um, and probably not really something, you know, is necessarily the focus of this, of this podcast, but what other issues um, are we putting a bandaid on that our kids are going to have to live with for their lifetime? Certainly the debt that we're incurring as a nation, um, at some point there will be a day of reckoning uh, some of the other social programs that you alluded to, right? We're creating a culture where people would rather stay home than work. Um, we're fostering that. Uh, we're putting, you know, we cuss our cows when we put them on welfare, right? We don't, cow goes dry. Well, we might, but some people are just like, well, that's just what you're supposed to do with cows. Yeah. Um, but based, you know, I kind of, and I'm, I'm assuming, I know you come from the ranching for profit model background as well and so those are some oh, things you're wrong <laughs> yep we we know that there's nick there's a cost to that right and uh and at some point there are there always will be a day of reckoning and there will be a time when things will be able to be rebuilt and i i think maybe your mission and my mission align in that if we can have enough core people who understand truth and true and correct principles that when we get into that rebuilding phase, we can take a shift towards freedom and free enterprise versus socialism and communism, more top-down government control over us. And really, it's going to be that decision that we're going to have to make. So why do we do what we do? Um, for me, that's a big reason why I do what I do. As you know, in the founding era of the United States, it was a it was a small percentage of people. They say around 2% of the people actually fought. But yet it turned the tide for this nation and set the stage for many other nations to create similar constitutions to ours, which promoted freedom and free enterprise. And the country would be very different if it hadn't have been for those people who had the backbone and the strength to be able to go back to their core principles of what they believed in and fight for that. I... I think we're, I think there's going to be more top-down control coming before 
before that paradigm switches before that pendulum swings back to the other way and and the existing structures and and policies that have been built over the last you know 200 225 years of top-down control i think we're going to start you know those are going to strengthen those are going to grow before they start to crumble and fall and I, and I think our, our ultimate future is more bottom-up management and less top-down management. But getting there, getting there is kind of a um, kind of a murky, murky path. I think it can be um, murky in the sense that we we don't have a record like of what it was like to go through the last crisis era at the end of the depression. Um, many of that, much of that generation has now died off. My grandpa's no longer with us. He was born in 1900 and died in 1997. He was almost 97 years old. Um, so you think about all the changes that happened in that nearly a century of his lifetime. He, um, went he, from he, everything being drawn by horses to men on the moon and the internet and on the moon. And the, yep. Yep. The internet was just, I remember, um, I remember somebody telling me, hey, you could send an email. I was like, what is that? I got back from my mission in Central America or South America in 95. And somebody said that. And I was like, I I didn't even know what they were talking about. But then, you know, by 2000, everybody had it in their home. And so, so huge changes. But that, that generational wisdom has died off. But that doesn't mean that we don't have access to it. But what we want to access is the quick, the fast, and the easy, especially in our generation with social media, instant news. And I find myself, you know, if, I, if I've got to watch it, I watch you on TikTok, by the way. <laughs> Pretty cool, you're following. But a three, I, I struggle making a three-minute video, and my mentor's telling me I've got to cut it down to 15 seconds. And I'm like, how can you, how can you expand wisdom in 15 seconds when... I mean, the founders would go and study John Locke and Adam Smith, which are huge volumes, and they would spend weeks studying one principle from those books before they would implement a policy which would go into the Constitution and affect generations to come. So I'm not sure where I'm going with this. Where where are we going with this conversation? Because it's, it's, you know, I, I debate on the, on the, on the social media, right? Like, you know, you have just a precious few seconds to grab somebody's attention, whether we're talking about whether we're on TikTok, whether we're on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, whatever, whatever platform you're on, you just have like two to three seconds to grab somebody's attention. And if you don't have it, they're going to scroll on. Yep. And Facebook, when you realize that you are not Facebook's customer, you are Facebook's product, you are social media's product, you are not their customer, okay? They're not here to help you. There's no such thing as like, if your account gets hacked on Facebook, they don't give a crap. Just go make another one. But yeah. if your ad account gets broken into on Facebook, guess what? They're right there to help, especially if you spend a bunch of money in ads. Ask me how I know, because I've had some account troubles lately. Personal account, they don't care. You're just there as another source of data. You're just one of 4 billion people that they're mining data out of. They don't care about you. You're not their customer. 
and every and it, it's monetization of attention okay and like the, there's an economy based around attention it's how many minutes are these eyeballs going to be looking at my app mm-hmm. how many ads are they going to be able to tolerate in that time period before they say there's too many ads on this platform and i want to go look at you know go look at another one that's what they're down to and i love to bash facebook Facebook now is half ads and promoted content. If you just if you sit there for five minutes and scroll through your Facebook feed and you mark down what's in a group, what's a friend's post, and what's sponsored content, you're going to get about half of that as sponsored and paid content. Yeah. Like, you are not their customer guy. We are their product. So, and where I'm going with that is, like I totally respect that there's a lot of social media managers out there and there's a proven recipe for success on social media. Figure out how to distill your message down to 15 seconds. Short form videos rule right now. Short form videos and memes. Like if you're not posting a meme on Facebook, nobody's gonna see it. And if you're not posting a short form video, nobody's watching it. Fine, I get that. There's also a lot of need in the space to be able to sit down and have these long format conversations that take a little longer than 15 seconds where we can unpack some of these issues and really look at the nuance. Because if we, if we all go all in on the attention economy and try to get, try to put out 15 second videos, we're, it's a superficial connection Mm -hmm. because people want to see a 15 minute video that they can have an immediate emotional reaction to whether it's positive or negative and the negative ones, get more attention faster for some crazy reason. Like people love to see you fail. They love to see things getting messed up. They don't like to hear you talking about your success. Yeah. And you know, I'm not too proud to admit that I fail often. And sometimes it's spectacularly bad when I fail. Yeah. And I try to show that on social media. Sometimes I win and I win big. And I don't really talk about that because you know, I, that's just you put something out there like hey look at this awesome thing i did on social media well yeah a lot of that's just going to stoke ego sometimes i need that most of the time i don't and that's okay but i think that i guess i guess we're i'm just rambling now but uh you know i i really appreciate being able to sit down in a format like this and unpack issues and and really get to understand what somebody's trying to say and where they're coming from, because that's what we need more of in this world. We need less superficial bullshit. We need more deep understanding and empathy for the environment that other human beings are trying to make a living in. I appreciate that you're willing to do this um, and and applaud those who, you know, plug in and whether they're feeding cows or driving or whatever, listen to two hours because, um, that shows a level of commitment and I think we're going to need to get back to that, that, uh, the, the, the tough issues that we're facing in society, they can't be solved in 15 seconds. Right. Um, we're very much a bread and circuses, uh, society now where we are looking for something like you said, those, that, that in those endorphins that are released and oftentimes they're by the negative, um, and that's why news media, you know, runs basically the show is because that's what they feed off of. Um, they put us in that fight or flight mode. We're more reactive. And uh, 
and yeah, there's some consequences that will be felt. Um, ADD, ADHD, depression, anxiety, I think can, um, uh, even, even down to, even down to relationships and families falling apart. Certainly social media is not the sole cause of that. Right. But, um, when we would rather engage with somebody on a screen versus be with a family and I see it, I'm not immune from it myself and, you know, our, our children, um, when we sit down and we want to have a discussion, we've had to make rules like phones stay in your pocket, you know? Um, sometimes we read scriptures in the morning and we do it on our phones, but then, uh, you, it's easily distracted. You get a text message that comes in and I'm just like, Oh, I've got to quick send a reply to this. And then I just missed the whole conversation. I missed that whole opportunity to be able to engage with the people that I care about and love the most because I'm distracted. And that's, I think is a huge cost right now, as I see it, it's just, you know, if, if we're distracted, if we don't see the problems, and the real issues for what they are, then we can be easily manipulated. And then we can be, um, our, our, our whole patterns can be changed. So I, I applaud what you're doing and, and I'm trying to do something very similar. Um, hopefully this week, whenever this comes out. So it's first of March. Uh, my goal is by the end of end of this week, so March 11th, I'll have the Profitable Steward podcast out, which is just uh, pulling the audio from our webinars with some of the great speakers like Alan Williams and Dave Pratt from the Ranching for Profit. Um, Tony Malmberg is going to be on this Thursday. And and just to, just to be able to share timely principles, but not based on the fads, based on eternal principles and eternal truth, you know, those principles that don't change. Uh, this one should come out on the uh, on the twentieth. That's okay. just, that's just off the top of my head. I didn't even look at the schedule, but it should come out on the twentieth. And if you're listening to this and it didn't come out on the week of the twentieth, I don't it's know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's the schedule right now. Yeah, well, good for you for doing it. And and I I would say keep it up and figure out a way that you know you can. Um, I guess I'd ask for you. Do you, why do you do what you do? Is this, is this mission space for you? Is this, do you monetize how you share your message? What, what is it that, cause you've done how many podcasts now? 120 plus. Uh, this is number one Oh seven without okay. looking at my notes. This is number one Oh seven. Uh, on the main podcast. And I think I've done 10 or 11 bonus episodes. So like, 115 ish. Yeah. Why do I do it? Um, I, I've got some, I've got some good sponsors that have been with me a while. C90 is one of them. Uh, Bobo links and Audubon conservation ranching. Um, we're working on, we're working on another deal and I've got some patrons on Patreon that, you know, that it, I'll be honest. Like I, I could probably, I should be offering my patrons probably more than I do right now. It's more of just a way for fans of the show to, to show their support for what I'm doing and to help, to help me keep making content yeah. um, like dollars per hour wise to produce the podcast. Like uh, there's a lot of things that I could get more dollars per hour for than doing the podcast. Um, 
so it's not a money-making thing right now. Someday, I hope it would be. Someday, I hope it would at least be, you know, a little more worth my time to do. Not saying that it isn't, but, you know, having some dollars back in the bank for the time spent um, would, would be nice. Reason I do this is, A, it needs to be done. B, it's hard. And C, it really challenges and pushes me um, to do things like on a schedule, to force myself to talk to somebody when I said I would, because I'm the, I'm the world's worst about answering a telephone. Like, okay. if you really want to get a hold of me, send me a text, tell me what you want to talk about. I'll try to find time to call you. A lot of yeah. times when my phone rings, I just don't really want to answer it because I'm just not in the mood to deal with anybody. Um, so this is, this is really good for me. It helps. It's exercising mental muscles that otherwise would atrophy, atrophy for me. Yeah, that makes sense. I can, I can relate to that. Why, what do you, what would you say, Brian, is your core message? Like the people who listen to your hundreds of over a hundred podcasts, and I know you're inviting other people with messages on, but certainly to have the following that you do, there's something there that is, that is core that keeps coming up that keeps them engaged. Ooh, man, asking me all the hard questions while the recording's going. Uh, so I guess when this comes out, you get to see what I edit and what I don't. The <laughs> <laughs> um, core message, I guess, is just that, you know, not everything that we've been taught our whole lives about food and food systems is the entire picture. And I really, I want to change people's thinking about farming, ranching, food systems, and the people that operate them. Um, and yeah, I, I kind of did rip that off from my tagline, but there's a reason it says what it does. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there, there are some, there are some deep intrinsic problems in agriculture in land management, public land use in the West. And we need to talk about some of them. We need to talk about some of them, not necessarily, you know, nobody's got a solution that works and that's fine, but we need to hear from the people that it's affecting. And I think a large part of my audience is also, you know, it is the urban dweller millennial that is interested in where their food comes from and maybe wanting to come out and do what I do or do what you do. And that's yeah. great. Um, and to those people, I want them to be, I want them to have a, a broader base of understanding of what's going on in our industry rather than just going, you know, to NCBA and saying, Hey, I want to get into cows and them saying, well, go buy Angus and, you know, build a feedlot and buy all the feed you need for them because, <laughs> or go to, you know, go get an animal science degree. Cause that's kind of what it's going to drive you towards doing. Yeah. There needs to be other perspectives than that. So that's. I guess that's what I'm, that's some of what I'm trying to do, you know, get, you know, talk to people that, you know, are on the fringe that are not doing things that are quote accepted as a mainstream practice or taught in college. Let's go talk to those guys. Let's hear their stories and see where they're being successful and how they're being successful or what they'd change to, you know, you get what I'm saying. Yeah, I do. And I, that, that's cool. That's thank you for giving some context to why you do what you do. There, there's also in the back of my head, um, you know, I, I don't have my own branded beef business. Mm -hmm. I got some beef in the freezer. I got some that are going to the processor this year. 
And, you know, okay, so there is some of it that, you know, I have built a social media following over all, God, probably eight years um, with my Red Hills Rancher page. Maybe it's more than that. I'd have to go look. Anyway, that's not the point. The following I've built, I've never really tried to sell anybody anything other than, you know, advertise and affiliate links on my on my podcast. Never come out and said, guys, use this product. Do this. Buy my stuff. That That's not what I'm about. You know, I, I like... I like sharing things about ranch life that nobody else really does. Like I go down to the beaver ponds and I'll take video down by the beaver ponds and talk about beavers. They're in a, they're like no other ranchers on Facebook doing that, you know, on your place. Yeah. Yeah. You got beavers in Kansas. Yeah. I did not know that. Oh yeah. That is awesome. I have just on one Creek within less than a mile and a half. I have, two beaver colonies on awesome. the creek That's and neat. yeah 30 months of drought i was just down there today it, it's awesome to go down there and you know every couple of weeks and the creek level just comes up just a little bit just a yep. little bit just a little bit because those beavers they keep going they keep adding on to the top of all their dams and keep raising that creek level up 30 months of drought i like there's another creek that i drive by that uh that's had beavers on it. I don't know if they're there currently or not, because there's not much water. Um, but I drive by that. And that one's dry. I drive by a couple other creeks that are pretty much dry. Yeah. They don't have beavers on them. Creek got beavers on them. I got a lot of water. I think yeah. they're, doing a, they're doing a good thing. I mean, I set up on a hill this morning for about oh, 10 or 15 minutes and just watched my cattle graze kind of down there in the creek bottom amongst the beaver ponds and my friend Brendan Wheelock likes to say, you can't buy water like that. Yeah. You can't even build it. I'm like, yeah, you're right. And it's just kind of nice to sit there and enjoy it. Um, I found a, I found a little pile of feathers this morning. I mean, it was about oh, 10 or 15 feet away from the edge of one of those ponds. I'm like, okay. And I'm not a bird guy. So I took some pictures of it and sent it to my, uh, my friend that works. He's the state coordinator for Pheasants Forever Quail Forever. Figured feathers, he'll know what they're from. So I sent it to him and he says, looks like a duck. Maybe a hawk killed it. And I said, well, that kind of scans because it was about 15 feet away from a beaver pond and it didn't really look like a coyote. And he says, yeah, that looks like a duck that some kind of hawk or a falcon just nailed. I'm like, hmm, okay, that's cool. And my cattle were like 30 yards away. Yeah. From where I found those feathers. So, okay. Hopefully it wasn't a coyote, but, uh, you know, it's fun. I, I, okay, I don't like seeing a duck get smoked, but that's the natural order of things. Like, I mean, yeah. that's the balance. That's the natural order of things. So, yes. you know, I see things like that. I see uh, we have uh, lesser prairie chickens here on the ranch. Mm -hmm. Really cool bird. Don't see them that often because, you know, like when they're nesting and they're, you know, on their leck. I don't go over there during those times of year because I don't want to disturb them. Yeah. Uh, but it was, gosh, I think it was probably eight years ago. We'd had a we'd had a lot of prairie chickens on the ranch that year. So this is like 2015. Lots and lots of prairie chickens. Um, had a gentleman down from Nebraska 
and we're kind of off in the southwest part of the ranch out looking because you know he's like well let's go look at this lek area i'm like okay so we're out there kind of cruising around on the razor um and all of a sudden we, we see something running in the brush I'm like what is that so I kind of take off after it well it was a fox and we kind of we kind of chased it around a little bit and eventually scared up another one so now there's two foxes okay that's cool so we you know kind of chased them around a little bit and eventually lost them and went back and uh went back and started talking to these guys and like okay what kind of fox was that well don't know gonna have to look so we started looking and doing the research as either a swift fox or a kit fox which now granted i'm not a college educated biologist or anything but seems like a swift fox and a kit fox the only difference is one lives in the east one lives in the west i mean it's, it's the same size they're the same color everything's pretty much the same the only way you can really tell them apart is get a hold of one and get a dna sample the moral of the story is whether we're talking about a swift fox or a kit fox their favorite one of their favorite things to eat is lesser prairie chicken eggs mm -hmm. does that bother me that you know lesser prairie chicken is you know, a threatened or endangered or listed species, uh, there's foxes out there eating their eggs. Does that bother me? No. I think it's awesome. Just like we talk about beavers being, you know, close to a key to keystone species. Well, lesser prairie chickens are cool. And when you have a dense enough population of lesser prairie chickens, you get foxes. Yep. So it's just... Every other, every other species like that that I find evidence of on the ranch tells me that I'm I'm still on a rising trend of ecological diversity and production. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I think the way we look at things is very similar in that we're seeing beavers come back into our landscape, and we see that as. A, uh, beavers and earthworms for me are just like okay you're doing enough things right that you're not poisoning them you're not chasing them off you're not destroying the habitat so they can come back in and the uh the ramifications or the uh downstream benefits are going to be great because of that because of everything else that can thrive in that same habitat and so taking a look at things by working with individuals like you know when we first went through ranching for profit, I, I started looking down instead of across the landscape, right? Started realizing, okay, cover is super important. I'm really a grass farmer, not just a cattle rancher. And so that was a shift in paradigm. And then when I met Nicole Masters and she said, there's a whole nother life going on beneath the soil that you can have as much uh, stock density by weight in a functioning healthy soil of microbes beneath the soil as you could ever have of pounds of cattle beef horses whatever you're grazing on above the soil i thought wow really i had no idea i mean earthworms i can see and i can measure but now we're starting to look at you know what other populations of microorganisms are living there besides the bacteria which is you know most of us farm and ranch and highly bacterial soils because that's what we've created and so it tends to stay in that early succession with annuals and weeds and grasses it doesn't it doesn't progress to more of the woody species where the 
fungal dominant or that balance soil is. Um, so yes, in our management, shouldn't we be striving for balance? Shouldn't we be looking at some of those things that other people are saying, you know, as a problem and we just, we just look at it as an indicator, whether that be weeds or predators. Um, we just say, well, why are they here? Is it a good thing that they're here? And I appreciate that you're saying, you know, foxes, you didn't just go blast the thing and think, well, he has no place on our ranch. Like, why are you here? What is it that you're telling me? You know, it's all just feedback. Yeah. It's not like the foxes are really going to go after my calves. I mean, right. and I don't think coyotes really are either. I mean, if, yeah, it happens. Yes. Coyotes <clears throat> will kill calves. But if a coyote kills a calf, was the calf going to make it anyway? Was there something wrong with the calf? Mm -hmm. You know, was the calf already sick? I don't know. I, I think a lot of those that, you know, when guys say, oh, coyotes are killing my calves. You know, maybe if you wouldn't calve in January. There's no uh, other feed out there. No other, nothing else for them to prey upon, right? Yeah, you know, I'm going to start around April 15th, which there should be plenty of rabbits by April 15th. Like, yeah. And that, that should take a lot of the pressure off. Um, I've also done something this year that I've never done before. Uh, I have a friend that, of course, I have friends that coyote hunt. And I normally say no. Because mm -hmm. a lot of guys just, they like to run dogs and they'll run through fences. I've got a guy that likes to call. He likes, him and his son, they just like to go out and sit and call. Okay, go out and see what you can do. Um, it, was, it was something like a month ago, they had a, a coyote calling competition. This guy and his boy called in like 15 coyotes and pounded all of them in one day. Yeah. Um, and they were out last weekend. And, you know, I, I, you know, he knows where my cows are. He knows when I'm going to calve. And, you know, we're, we're kind of working to where, you know, he's going to come out here a couple more weekends before I calve. And he's going to, the only call, or not the only call, the call he tries first is calf in distress. Mm. We can get those ones out that are attracted by those sound. And when there's no more that are attracted by that sound, then shift to something else, you know, then shift to your squirrel or, or whatever. But, you know, try to get them to come to that calf in distress first. Because if they'll come to a call that's, that's screaming calf in distress, they'll dang sure go to a live one. And yeah. those are the ones we got to get rid of first, you know, it, and I, I think a lot of coyotes get, not a lot. I think there's some coyotes that get blamed for killing a calf when maybe they're just cleaning it up and the calf died of natural causes. Yeah. So we got to be careful with that. And there's also something to be said that, you know, just like if, if go out and indiscriminately kill predator animals, it can really uh, honestly sometimes have the opposite effect because unless you get the ones that are actually responsible for the predation you're experiencing, unless you get those animals, they teach other ones. Mm -hmm. So you got to get the ones that are actually affecting you and you got to know if they're actually affecting you. I, my two cents anyway. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think it comes back to kind of the bigger principle Right. Um, Walt Davis talked a lot about that in his books. I don't know if you know Walt through Wally or anybody, but a great, great land manager, great manager, just a great person. Um, he visited our ranch at one point with Wally Olson and um, just when they were traveling through here. So we were experimenting with goats at the time and, and had a lot to offer. 
Um, but <clears throat> he just explained that when you, um, nature is striving for balance and it's never perfect, right? Um, but if oftentimes if we remove the the predator, the unintended consequences could could be worse than the problem initially. So, so for example, um, whether that be prairie dogs, here we have ground squirrels, um, gophers, things that the that the if you're calving in sync with nature, as you mentioned, there's going to be loads of ground squirrels. Maybe you want more coyotes on your landscape so that you don't have ground squirrels in your fields. Um, so if you are, yeah, I like that arbitrarily, if you just think, well, I know best. And so we're going to remove this species, uh, when in fact, that's, that species might be there as an indicator telling you something. Um, the other thing is, you know, oftentimes if you remove that patriarch coyotes are territorial, you remove that something is going to come in. Like you can be a friend with that coyote and he can understand where your boundaries are. You can understand where his boundaries are and he's going to work for you. You remove him. The others come in, they haven't been trained. And so those might be the ones that are creating the problem. So, I mean, we, we, uh, oh, a few years ago, we, we kind of said, no, we're not going to just allow coyote hunting. Um, but if we see something and it's preying on a calf, I mean, there's no mercy, right? I mean, we're as, as stewards, it's like it behooves us to be able to take care of the problem, but do it surgically, not, you know, uh, don't, don't do the shotgun approach is how we see it with management. And, and this is just a good example of something that maybe people, ranchers especially can understand, but you might also overlay that over an invasive species the same thing or are you just going to go out and blanketly spray herbicide with disregard to what it's doing to the soil health your family's health and the health of for you know time to come the half-life of whatever that herbicide or insecticide is that you spray yeah and you might and everybody that's downstream of you in the watershed yes right and so we I'm not definitely not advocating for more government control, um, but more self-government, more understanding and more sitting back and doing just what you did this morning is sitting on a hill and thinking about, you know, what was this? Why was it here? What is my role in this landscape? What am I to do as a steward to promote what it is that I want, right? But not... And not in the sense that I know best, but in the sense that as a steward, there are certain things that I want. I want to be profitable. I want to grow more grass. I want to be able to increase our stocking rate so that we can run more livestock. But I don't want to do that to the detriment long-term of the landscape that I'm managing through short-term measures, such as even like applying uh, fertilizers. You might boost your yield this year but what is that going to do long-term, especially as you create an environment where you're dependent upon that outside input to be able to get the production that you need. Now with fertilizer prices increasing exponentially, you remove that thing, which is a crutch. And can your, can your system still stand? Can it still maintain integrity if you remove something that you've created as a key piece? Probably not if it's used to walking with that crutch. You can just kick that crutch out from underneath of it and expect that 
organism to succeed. You know, whether we're talking about whether we're talking about corn, soybeans, or cattle. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of farmers that are that are facing that, right? They it's neat to see that now when you pick up a trade publication, um, whether that be a forage one geared more towards farming or whether that be even a, a beef magazine. And most of them have something in there on soil health. I don't know if you're noticing that, but whereas a decade ago, that wouldn't have been the case. Two years, Jared, two years. They, we've only started seeing soil mentions of soil health or regenerative agriculture in, and I'd say the, the mainstream agriculture literature, two years. Like, yeah, and that's it. You mentioned earlier um, that, you know, like seven, eight years ago, you'd never even heard the term regenerative. Yep. Yeah. I would agree with that. I would agree with that. And I would say that probably until it was probably somewhere around 2015, 2016, when I started having some serious problems with the word sustainable. Mm -hmm. And I think there were a couple of us that started throwing around the term regenerative around then. Um, it, look, I guess I'm just saying that, you know, people trying to own terms. Like, look, nobody owns regenerative agriculture. I don't give a crap yeah. if you said, well, I've been doing regenerative agriculture since 1985. Okay, great. Were you calling it that then? Like, please, let's just, let's stop trying to compete with each other and say, you know, who is the first person to be doing regenerative agriculture? Like, because we're not even the first. We're yeah. just rediscovering shit that's been lost for 100 to 150 years because of industrialization. This isn't anything new. Like, it, you know, when we go out, we, we put cattle behind polywire and we move them every day. Like, the same damn thing can be accomplished by having two guys out there all day herding the cattle around in the pasture. Okay? We're not doing anything new. And it was done by predators prior to cowboys. Right. Or you go over to Africa and it's done by the Maasai on foot. Like, yeah. I mean, this is nothing new. We are not doing anything new. We might, it might look new because we've got shiny plastic and we've got side-by-sides, mm -hmm. but this is not new. You know, yeah. cowboys back in the 1850s, 60s, and 70s, when they'd go down to, you know, Mexico and South Texas and gather cattle and bring them up to the railheads in the mid, you know, in the plains. Those cattle would gain two pounds a head a day and still walk 20 or 30 miles. Like, it, we're not discovering anything new. We already knew all of this. We've just forgotten it. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. That oftentimes it's going back to what we knew or what generations before knew. It's unlearning. You know, it's not what we know. It's what we think we know that isn't so that costs us. Um, and so challenging those paradigms, as you mentioned, is going to be where the breakthroughs really come from and regenerative, um, you know, I, I posted that on social media and kind of back to your point on social media, we won't digress, but, um, uh, where I find the most value in social media is in groups, like you use it for a purpose right. and, and don't mindlessly scroll. Right. Or, I mean, Facebook knows better than you how you are based on the AI that we talked about, right? Supposedly Amazon can predict you're pregnant before you know you're pregnant based on what you're looking for. And, and, and they've made a business out of it 
of and they've done really well and so to come i guess to bring that back to the decisions that we're making right now as stewards what are we doing today that will have either positive or negative effect down the road how can we have um foresight about what our hindsight will be like in other words when we're it's easy for us to it's easy for me to look back and say well the taylor grazing act the wild horse act those were not good things to happen but what are we allowing to happen on our operations um, in our own lives today that in 10 years we'll say man i wish i would have made a different choice and i think that it is again doing what you're being so a good friend of mine william demille um he just wrote a book and i wrote the forward to that book um he actually works on the ranch but he has his own business he grows most of the food that we have on the ranch um from the garden standpoint we grow the beef he grows all the greens we have a year-round greenhouse um it's a it's kind of a modified grow hole, a wallapini style greenhouse, which is okay. pretty cool. He could be a good guest on your, because he, everything he teaches is small scale gardening, but he's doing that over our irrigated acres and eventually we'll be doing it over our um, uplands and other acreages as well. So he, he talks about, bring it back, mindful management. And that's what, I really like that term, mindful management versus mindless management so being mindful in the decisions that we make is going to help us and it's going to reap uh the rewards do we do we always know you know i i, I come from two schools of thought one of them is uh stan parson started the ranching for profit Alan nation was partnered with him um in this starting the savory institute uh, so I've been to both of them. There are good things about both of them. Um, and Dave Pratt was on from Ranching for Profit. Tony Malmberg is going to be on from the Savory Institute. And so I don't, I want to, rather than divide, right, which is kind of what media and things are doing to society. I'm saying, look at the good on both sides. Ideally, if you can afford to go to both schools, because you're going to learn so much from those two perspectives um why did i bring that in so the savory institute the way that they manage in teaching that holistic context is super important like what is it what is it that you really want what is your three-year vision and what are you doing this year this month this week and today to be able to create that vision but with the assumption at first that you're wrong right and that's big that takes the that takes the pride out of the picture and it puts you in a place of humility and thinking that I don't know if this decision to spray weeds is really in my best interest. I'm going to test it and I'm going to try it with the assumption that I'm wrong. And if it works and I get feedback that it's working, then I'll implement that at a larger scale. Right. But we look for that shiny new object in agriculture and we're so guilty of that. And the honestly, probably one of the big reasons that regenerative and soil health is coming more into mainstream is because people are opportunistic and they're starting to sell you know these biological products and this next thing this cover crop seed or this next implement this next tool which is going to make you more effective and that's all good you know i have a no-till drill um 
But they're two magic bullets. They're not. No, if you don't understand the principle behind why you're doing what you're doing, just like the grazing, if all you do is go and build more fence, you can just overgraze more effectively, essentially, right? Because we think that, okay, I'm going to force these cattle to clean up this, clean up their plate. Well, in, in doing that, you're you're moving towards what you don't want, right? Instead of instead of just saying, okay, they like this grass species first, they like these legumes. So we're going to go in, we're going to flash graze, and we're going to get out. The wire grass is still going to be there. Great. It's providing cover. We're not going to sit there and force it because in the meantime, you're going to overgraze everything else, those individual plants. So so maybe that's why we're starting to see it. And that's, again, it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing if people want to be opportunistic and they want to sell us implements and things like that. But but overlay that with why are we going to do that? Why, why do we need another piece of iron in our yard that's going to rust rot and depreciate? Um, could we do that a different way? Could we, could we get the same effect through management with livestock with something that's going to appreciate, gain weight, reproduce and put more money in our pocket versus something that's going to cost us more money. And again, mindful management is the way that we do that. It's sitting there and looking at that beaver pond, um, pondering on, you know, what it is that I want this operation to look like for my great grandkids. What is the legacy that I want to leave behind for them? Are they going to remember um, that piece of equipment that we bought? Probably not, but they will remember and they, there will be, we will leave tracks on the way that we manage the land and the principles that we teach while doing that. And those are the things, that's the real legacy that we're going to, that we're going to create while being profitable at the same time, because if we, if we're not profitable, we can't be regenerative, right? Right. And profitable without subsidies. <laughs> that's who with, that, without that the tricky one without subsidies from the government and i appreciated like i preached this at the summit that we did in january and i kind of went out on a limb and i said that but then alan williams was our first guest speaker on the webinar and he said the same thing and i said thank you alan because you come from authority you have visited over four thousand ranches throughout the world and you see what works and you see what doesn't work dave pratt said the same thing on his uh, webinar so again by the mouth of two or three witnesses, I being the least qualified to say it, but those two being the most qualified, if you're subsidizing the ranch with government subsidies, unpaid, underpaid labor, or even tapping into the equity of your ranch to make it profitable, your farmer, ranch, or your enterprise, that is not sustainable. And you cannot be regenerative long-term if you're doing those things. So wean yourself off those things if you're going to truly make a change because we can't rely on that right yeah i mean you just got you just got it if you're well i mean the only thing more permanent than a temporary government program is a permanent government program and none of them start out as permanent they all start out as temporary oh we just need this new deal in these in this and these you know we just need this new deal just to get us over the depression oh we just need to do, you know, this this crop insurance for just a few years to to make sure we have enough of this commodity. None of those things ever stop. Like they just they they get entrenched. It's like 
you know, three years ago at the start of COVID, when they started throwing around free money, everybody's like, oh, free money, free money, free money. Yeah, that stuff doesn't go away. Like, you know, once you start giving people free money, you give them free money for two years, then all of a sudden you're like, well, hey, you know, that that a thousand bucks a month we've been sending you, we're just not going to send it to you anymore. Oh my God, we got to save the children. What are all the single starving mothers in town going to do? Oh, that affects these disadvantaged people. Oh, that affects these people. We can't stop that program because that'll put so many people back into poverty. I mean, the farm bill, and it started off as a safety net. And it's not a safety net. It's a damn hammock that people are just comfortable living in. And so... We're 30 months into this drought, okay? It has been, I've had, I had three quarters of an inch of rain like two weeks ago. Other than that, I really haven't had much moisture, so to, to speak of, since they worked the ground and planted wheat crop in the fall. Like that wheat crop is half as tall as it should be. I mean, it doesn't look good. And this bothers me, and I'm not naming any names or pointing any fingers, but if you're listening to it, you know who you are. Let's go plant a crop that we know is going to fail <laughs> just so we can get the insurance check. Yeah. Like, you are not a very good land manager. You are not a very good steward of the land. You are not a very good citizen of earth if you do that. On the other hand, if you're that guy... And that money's there, and it's going to create a positive in your bank account balance. It's really hard to not do that when you know daddy government is going to give you a check. Yeah. So I can definitely see both sides of it. Not being the beneficiary of it, I definitely want that crap to stop. Yeah. Because I mean, we're paying people to continue making poor decisions, poor land management decisions, just to keep them around again so they can make more poor decisions. That doesn't scan. That doesn't, that doesn't make sense. And to me, a lot of it circles back to, you know, we've been talking about, you know, regenerative and paradigms and you mentioned pride and ego. And I made a note here to that, 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 that ties back into the way the indigenous people, the native Americans thought about things. They would try to think about, how does this affect my descendants for seven generations? Yeah. And if they couldn't answer that question, they didn't do it. Mm -hmm. Like, well, I don't know how this is going to affect. I don't know how this is going to affect things for seven generations on this land. So we are not going to do this because we don't want to screw it up in ways that we can't possibly predict. Us European colonials, on the other hand, we completely lack that mindset. We, we, we just totally lack that vision. And that's one of the reasons why I spend a lot of time just out sitting around looking at my cows. I'll drive around, look at grass and measure grass. This place has got to be here, not just for me, but it, you know, in seven generations, I want it to look pretty much the same. I still want it to be productive. I still want it to be grassland. I still want there to be creeks. Yeah. So, you know, I let, I let that inform a lot of my decision-making. Has there been some opportunity, quote, 
opportunities missed for short-term profit, for sure. And not just by me, not just by my dad, but by all the people in my family that have that have held management on this land, that have held stewardship on this land. And that goes back over 100 years, like 1912, awesome. 1913 is when the Skinner family originally started putting together land out here. Right. As far as I know, we didn't get any, like my family didn't have any of the original homestead. My family's not original homesteaders here. Like they showed up 30, 40 years later and started buying out all the guys that had already left. That's that's typical. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I think there's a big, I think there's a reason for that, but uh, yeah, we'll get, we'll get back to that one of these days. So, you know, we, we talk about these systems that are artificially propped up and they're only artificially propped up because we forgot to take into account how does this leave our descendants seven years down the line? Yeah. Seven generations. What? Yeah. Let, let alone, I mean, we can't, we've created, we fostered such a culture, you know, and, and I get it. I mean, having to make bank payments, having to decide, you know, what are we going to cut out this month so that we can pay for the braces bill for my daughter? Um, how, what are we not going to fix so that we can fill our fuel tanks? Um, and those are hard decisions that we have to make and they're, and they're real. And that's the balance, I guess, Brian is like looking seven generations. And that's why when I coach people, I, we've, we, first of all, we start off and we make sure that they have enough room to breathe. Like they're going to know where food is going to come from because we can't think if you look at the hierarchy of needs, you can't think about those higher levels, the self-actualization and vision. If you're worried about where your next meal is going to come from. If all of a sudden you can't breathe, there's only one problem that you have and that's getting breath. Who cares about seven generations, right? And many of us I'm finding as I'm holding these calls and exploring what we're doing with our coaching program, Many people are in that. They don't feel like they can breathe. They don't say it. They don't recognize it. But me as a third party mentor, looking at them through a Zoom screen, sometimes thousands of miles away, I can realize they don't, they're, they're not doing okay. And they don't even know it. But subconsciously, they feel it. But if we can, if we can, first of all, get them room to breathe. So kind of go back. Get them room to breathe, know where their meals are going to come from, know that things are going to be okay, and then tap into that vision, which it's really hard to think seven generations. So we start with a three-year vision, and we say, where do you want to be in three years? And then we work that backwards. It helps so that we're not um, we're not driven by this, uh, this expediency, I think is the right word, right? When we do something short-term, which is going to cost us long-term. Yeah. Like we might, we might strategically overgraze this field, but we know the cost of doing it. Right. If we're going to ship calves or we've got to have the cattle here by this date, and we're going to go to church with, um, with our family and we're going to be, meet another obligation, they're going to stay there two days longer, but I know what the cost is and I'm going to do that so that the cattle are there when we need to fill the trucks come Monday. Um, it's not just whatever's easiest, you know, if it means that we got to trail the cattle across the ranch to meet a bigger grazing plan, 
then we do that because there's a bigger why inside of us and we and we know what that is but so many of us are just my, myself included like flying by the seat of our pants it's just like i wonder what's going to work this year i don't know didn't work that good last year so let's try something different and uh yeah i can t- tell your wheels are turning there what, <laughs> what how do we how do we help people just have that longer vision brian how do we how do we get past just getting through this year well i folks are drowning because of lack of connection and whether that's you know lack of personal connection or or emotional connection i think there's a, there's a lot of us that struggle and sometimes it's a silent struggle and you won't be able you don't always you can't always see it um Yeah, I, I, I was, I was just, I really didn't have anything, Jared. I was just kind of sitting here, and you had my gears turning. I was just, just thinking that you know, everything sounds familiar because, you know, my wife and I, you know, we're we do counseling. We have some, we have a relationship coach that you know. I guess I'll pull out a Dave Pratt quote, or, or, or maybe it's just a utility ranching for profit quote that amateurs pay to play the game professionals get paid and they generally have a coach yeah yeah and there's so many people in this in this industry you know we could just call ag or beef or cattle that are so far drowning that that have been drowned in easy answers and silver bullets that don't work and they're drowning and they're looking for another silver bullet mm-hmm. and they don't exist because like, like we said before, there aren't any easy answers and the more easy answers you take, the more, you know, the more you surround yourself with people that are going to tell you what you want to hear, because it's what you want to hear. You end up like you end up isolated. You end up without any extra thought and or without any like contradictory thoughts. And then you kind of barrel down this path, like, okay, well, we got to build this feedlot because there's an ethanol plant next door and we get all their distillers grains and, and whatever. Great, great situation for you. Well, then your labor costs jump 50% in one year or your fertilizer costs jump a hundred percent in a year. Your antibiotic costs jump a hundred percent in a year. Like, and you know, the, the cost increases we're seeing in, in all of our inputs, they're not going to go back down, right? Yeah, like when when have they ever? I mean, commodity prices will fluctuate. Hey, we'll probably come back down some, but I don't see buying an, another thirty thousand dollar brand new pickup. That the where can you get a new pickup for thirty thousand dollars? I don't even think you. Can I mean, what it. I I'm saying when I took over management, that's what you know. Uh, my dad would trade his pickup in every two years, and that's what it was like. Thirty, thirty-two thousand dollars, and that's not that long ago. And now they're, you know, you can be three times that much. So I get it. Yeah, it was just it was it was probably like two years ago. I haven't even been on and looked lately because it's just too depressing. But like two years ago, it would you would still be in sixty thousand dollars for a base model, no options, diesel, regular cab regular bed pickup to put a bail bed on $60,000. Maybe you could get that a little bit closer to 50 mm-hmm. that. And, and when we're talking about cows, like 
um, there was a graphic that that somebody else that went through that that wonderful school that shall not be named uh, put together probably 10, 11 years ago about how many cull cows it took to buy a pickup in like the early 70s and then how many it took to buy a pickup in 2012. I'd like, maybe I ought to dig that one back out of my archives and update it for this year. It would be, right? be horrible. Like, like in the 70s, calves were like 600 bucks. Well, yeah. pickup was four grand. So that's uh -huh. not that bad. Well, then you go to like 2011, 2012, I think was, is when that graphic was redone. And uh, yeah, it was a nicer pickup. It was a four door instead of a regular cab, a dually instead of a single wheel. Um, and cows were worth like 800 in that graphic. Well, to get a $60,000 pickup, you got to sell a lot of $800 cows. Well, now yeah. we're talking about like, you know, it, it, you could wrap up sixty five, seventy thousand dollars in a feed truck real quick. That is a lot of cows. That is a whole bunch of cows to sell that. And, you know, in the seventies, diesel was a lot cheaper. I mean, hell, even in 2012, diesel was two, you know, two, two fifty a gallon. Now it's four bucks. Yeah. You don't uh, round up cost of roundups doubled and hydrous is anhydrous is high potassium or uh, potash might not even be able to get it next year from what I understand it it's probably looking for another significant price increase so like almost across the board fuel in two years is up at least 50 percent all of all the rest of your input costs that you need for this you know the commodity farming business all those inputs have gone up at least 50 percent we haven't we haven't got the hit yet of how much our pharmaceuticals are going up like i'm talking about it like i use bottles and bottles of this shit every year but like every couple of years i might have to you know buy a bottle of draxon just to replace what i've got yeah but like, uh vaccines i'm sure vaccines have gone up um cattle tags do you order your tags where <laughs> we we rarely tag we we're a brand state so yeah i mean we and, kind of a kind and that, of that's fair yeah i get uh, it i ordered i ordered my all flex 840 tags from cattletags.com because i like you know i like to have the year code and i like to have a color code and i like to have my name and phone number on there because you know they get out of here once in a while so i'm not afraid to spend a little extra money on a tag you know having the eid Having the EID on the scale that I bought with the reader, I get all my weight records. Like, it's just so much easier for me to keep everything when I've got, you know, all those weight records. So to me, the cost is worth it. I don't, we talked about this last week. I do not support mandatory traceability at all. I do not support mandatory EID. I am not that guy. I yeah. support EID on my operation because it's easier for me. To. Because <laughs> yeah. I choose to, right? Transparency, traceability are great things as long as it's a voluntary program and I can flip that switch and go dark whenever I want to. Yeah. Okay. When it's the government telling me I have to register my cows and I have to tell them the tag numbers and whenever they move, I got to tell them where I'm moving to. No, fuck that. We are not doing that. Sorry. <laughs> We're not doing that. Like that's, that's not what I'm about. Um, 
But the cost, but what I was getting to is like the cost of all our inputs, you know, it just keeps creeping up and creeping up and creeping up. Um, you know, that lovely one that got thrown on us like eight years ago, the Affordable Health Care Act. I don't know anybody in ag whose health care bills went down. Yeah, no, nobody anywhere. Uh, if you work for a big corporation, maybe. Yeah, but is, are they not just passing that on to you in some some way? I mean, somehow we are we are paying for it. Somehow the consumer pays all the costs. Right. I mean, yeah. it, it's it, saying anything else is laughable. Oh, well, the government will pay that. No, they won't. The taxpayers pay that. That's you and me. Oh, well, this big company has to pay this fine. No, they're not paying that fine. They're paying that from profits from customers and less dollars they're paying producers. That's where they get the money for those fines. Like, it, it's it's not the companies that have to pay, that bear the burden. In yeah. the end, it's people. Like, um, I guess we can do some current events. East Palestine, Ohio, train wreck. Mm-hmm. Okay. Look, without, I'm like, not going to point any fingers about blame. It's a big mess. It's a big mess. The railroad caused it. Defective equipment caused it. Railroad. It'll never be put right. The government will step in and say, well, Norfolk Southern can't afford to pay for all this cleanup because they'd go broke. There's no such thing as insurance for this. So we, the government, are going to come in and clean this up. And we're going to take care of this and we're going to make everybody's house right. We're paying for that. Yeah. We're paying for that. And meanwhile, Norfolk Southern keeps running trains everywhere they want. Increasing corporate profits, trying to make trains longer so they can get by with less crew and pay them less and whatever. The problem is not the people. The problem is the people that run the systems. The problem is entrenched interest running systems. And the longer systems like that exist, the more power these entrenched interests have and the more they structure the system to benefit themselves. So, okay, parallel beef industry okay you got four big players in the beef industry they own all the politicians they own the national meat institute they own i mean they own research centers at universities like they own it all right you know for us as grass-fed guys to come out and say grass-fed's better it's more nutrient dense you and i may know that to be true in our hearts but if we said that on a package, we would get shut down immediately because one of the big packers would go, hey, USDA, they can't make that claim on their package without having all this data. Yeah. So the USDA would come to us and say, you got to take that off your package unless you can prove it. And he'd say, well, how do we prove it? And they say, well, I don't know. That's your problem. Go test it. So you go spend, you know, a quarter million dollars, get all the testing to prove it spend the you know twenty or fifty thousand dollars that it costs to get to be able to put that on your label with the USDA and then you put it on your label. And then what's that get you? Like so what I'm these big interests, they've got it all captured and they don't want us to win. Like you and I as grass fed producers, I'm assuming you're doing kind of a direct to consumer model. You said you're in some branded beef programs which I kind of like to get into you about that and we may have that may have to wait for another yeah another day um but as a grass-fed producer that goes direct to consumer 
we don't have any friends. NCBA is not our friend. <laughs> okay. Beef checkoff is not our friend. Yeah. You know, ADM, John Deere, JBS, they are not our friends. Like they would rather have us disappear than even acknowledge we exist. I think that, you know, with everything that we've talked about, maybe kind of bring it full circle and the little bit of time that we have left is, um, let's come back to the principle that there's near and dear to my heart. And that is stewardship with we're, we're operating in a very challenging environment based on the input costs that we're talking about, based on government regulations and control based on the lack of the ability for us to be able to market a quality product effectively to a consumer who is willing to buy it and do that legally. Um, and I, I appreciate what Joel Salatin says, you know, that everything he wants to do is illegal. And how do you do that? So you have to work within the system. Um, and I, this is, this, this is something I wanted to try on. And it, it came to me in a coaching call. Um, it seems like everybody is chasing the silver bullet. And one of those silver bullets that they're chasing right now is direct marketing. And I'm not sure, you know, why my wife and I had to go down all the paths that we had to do to get to the point where we are now. But one of those reasons I know is so that we can speak from authority about certain things, like what it feels like when you open your mailbox and see a foreclosure letter there, what it feels like when you're diagnosed with depression, what it feels like. Um, to start a company which had a great vision and to put your heart and soul into it and for it not to really take off, meaning our direct marketing company. Um, we still believe in grass-fed and we still absolutely uh, encourage that. And I and I, I send people to my friend and mentor, Cam King, of Grass-Fed Marketing Secrets. He's doing a great job of being able to teach you systems. But so to bring that back, to what we talked about earlier, if you don't have a vision for where you want to go, adding more fuel to your vehicle is not the right answer, right? And so this is what I wanted to try on and see if it makes sense for you. Um, your mission and your message need to be in alignment before you go to the next M, which is monetization. So mission, message, monetization. And I'm just, uh, again, sometimes these principles come. I felt like it was right for that person when I shared it, when they were asking me about, you know, should I invest in direct marketing? What I encouraged them to do was just start sharing a message on social media. Is it resonating with the people? Are you building a following like you're doing? You have a message and it is resonating. So your message is in alignment. And I believe it's backed by a mission. And I believe you will get to the step where there is the monetization, right? There's kind of that gestation period, but you've built the following, you're adding value to people. And so they will pay for that. But if those things are out of alignment, then the customer feels like there's, there's that dissonance. They, they may not be able to consciously say like, Oh man, I, I really like you, but I'm, I just, I'm not going to get out my credit card and buy your beef from you. They're not going to vocalize that, but if you peel back the, the cover a little bit and you're able to see into you, do you really believe in the message and is it really in alignment with what God put you on this earth to do? 
that's sometimes where a coach can be so valuable. And to also touch on the point the difference between a coach and a mentor, a coach will teach you what they can do, um, what they are good at doing. So like you go hire a basketball coach, they can sink three pointers all day. They'll teach you how to do it or at least get, you know, your odds. They'll teach you how to dribble. They'll teach you how to ball handle. A mentor, on the other hand, may not have that competency, but they understand the principles that affect all fields. So can I mentor somebody in basketball? Not in the skill set, but in the mindset. Just like my daughter plays basketball, my other daughter plays a violin. I indirectly mentor them. Like when my daughter was going to perform, it's like, okay, just remember, you got to breathe. If you don't breathe, your energy is going to be tight. You're going to be squeaky. It's not going to resonate. Breathe. Adjust your posture. Stand up straight. You step into who you are, and that will res that message will resonate through her way of expressing that message, which is music. My other daughter through basketball. You through podcasting. Me through putting on summits and webinars and coaching one-on-one -on -one with people. That message will come out. The people will feel it. And that's when they pull out their credit cards to buy because they realize, okay, there's something behind this. They may not care one bit about labels. And that's what we find is like, it's a, it's a, the only thing they care about is looking us in the eyes, us standing behind what we believe in. And I don't think we've lost a sale because we're not certified organic or certified grass fed. We tell them what we do and we own it. And that's our message. And if they believe in that, they buy from us. If they don't, and we're trying to share a message, which isn't us, we're doing them a disservice and ourselves a disservice. So three M's, mission, message, monetization. I like it. I, uh, I was remembering something that one of my friends on social media said, forget the platform, doesn't matter. They said that successful ranches in 10 years are going to be the ones that are telling their story today. Mm -hmm. Not the biggest, not the best, but the ones that are telling their story are going to be the successful ones in 10 years. And like, I, I totally validate everything you just said about customers and what they think they want, and what they say they're looking for. I think most of our customer base that's looking for, you know, pasture raised, grass fed beef. They're on the younger side. Mm -hmm. Okay. They know the labels are, they know labels are crap. Like yeah. they, they know that having certified organic doesn't mean anything. They know that, you know, they know what they don't want. Doesn't, mean, doesn't mean it was us raised. Exactly. Exactly. Product of USA means nothing anymore. Yep. You know, product of USA. Well, that's awful funny. What what kind of truck do you drive, Jared? So we've got a Dodge. It's, yeah. I too am a Dodge guy. Great American trucks, right? <laughs> no. Not the no. components. Surely. I don't even know if, where it was manufactured. Huh? Uh, probably Mexico. It was yeah, probably yeah. assembled from mostly American components and some in imported Mexico. in Mexico. Like, yeah, Dodge, good American company, muscle cars, Detroit. Yeah, rah. No, it's built by a bunch of Mexicans down in Mexico. Yeah. And hopefully you've got one that wasn't built on a Wednesday. 
<laughs> I don't know when mine was built, but it's been good. Well, you know what a Wednesday truck is. I don't know what a Wednesday truck is, no. So Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday, they build decent trucks because it's you know kind of middle of the week. You know, maybe you don't want one built on a Monday. You don't want one built on a Friday because a Monday truck, they're just coming off the weekend. They don't want to be at work. They're not thinking about it. Tuesday, maybe you get a good truck. Wednesday's the middle of the week. All they care about is middle of the week. Thursday, maybe you get a good truck. Friday, they're just trying to get through the day to get out of there. So if you, you know, get a truck from the middle of the week. There you go. <laughs> I didn't. I'm pretty sure mine was built on a Monday as much as I've had to, as much as we spent rebuilding over the last two years. But anyway, uh, tell me, tell me about Ag Steward. Yeah. Um, so we, we started Ag Steward the end of last year. We launched with the summit, uh, the beginning of January. That's still accessible. If you go to agsteward.fyi, um, you can buy lifetime access. It's 47 bucks to be able to tie into some, some great leaders in the regenerative agriculture industry. And so kind of my tagline is ranching or what is it to be to be truly regenerative you need to be profitable you can't be regenerative unless you're profitable um and so it's bringing that in and what what does profit actually mean so we we are pulling from leaders not only in agriculture but we also had some individuals that thought about leadership uh self-development um off-farm investing which is something that we're doing uh just being a steward over over wealth creation um, being able to use maybe some of the equity that you have in the land to be able to generate additional off-farm income that's not tied back to your to your labor and your production off the land, doing that strategically. With the goal that we can strengthen family-owned farms and ranches, help them to be highly profitable and regenerate the land that they steward to give them hope. Like, And that's, that's what we've gotten back. The feedback from that summit and from the webinars has been great um well attended and they um the individual a lot of them are like new to this whole regenerative thing surprisingly right i mean you and i talk about it probably all day every day and that's what we think about but so many in the industry it's like they don't they're like even you know household names to us uh gabe brown they don't know him and so I'm helping to educate them and bring them into what no-till is and does it fit on their operation with what their goals are. And really with the whole idea behind this is, yes, we're going to help you improve your production, but it's, it's helping the steward because behind every business, whether it's successful or a failure is a business owner. And that's probably what is unique about us is we're not so much focused on principles of production although my good friend steve campbell was one of the speakers and we just love what he does um we're focused on the producer on the steward so that they can better uh manage their stewardships they can be better stewards and whether that be your personal health whether that be that you're suffering from i mean we did with dave pratt we talked openly you know he and i both have had our bouts with depression um, that's huge in agriculture because we have this stigma that we can't talk about it. We've just got to pull ourselves up, pull our boots on and go to work every day. Who is there to be able to talk to people? And I'm finding that the more vulnerable I can be with my message, owning that message, that the more permission other people have to talk about it as well. 
And so the TikTok handle I used was Resilient Rancher. Um, just because I want to show what that resilience is, that's not not having weakness. It's being able to own those weaknesses, realizing that that is what creates us is who we are. And as we step into that and we lean into that instead of running away from it, that's actually where we get stronger, right? It's through those weaknesses that make us that make us strong. And one of my principles, one of my foundations is faith. And I talk openly about that also, that, that I don't believe in evolution. I believe we are created by divine design. And that we will, we will, we will stand accountable before God, who is a creator of this earth, for how we stewarded this earth. Um, so those are kind of the core principles of, of Ag Steward. Um, all of this leads into personal and business coaching. And I call it coaching because, again, maybe I need to call it more mentoring. But people understand the word coaching better than a mentor. But that's that's what we strive to do is um, my ideal clients are, are those who come with their wives, a husband and a wife. They sit down. They're committed. They show up. They get their things done. They report back in between and we see measurable success in a short period of time. And it's just, it's a privilege. It's such an honor to be able to work with these people who are committed, you know, and it's not so much that I have the magic sauce or the silver bullet. It's just listening, asking the right questions, looking at it from a perspective that they may not see, like being able to tell a 70 year old third generation producer that I didn't think he needed to pay a million and a half dollars in, in a capital gains tax. I'm not an expert, but my background has taken me through experiences and created a network so that I could call my CPA and say, Hey, let's jump on the phone with him. And he said, no, you don't have to pay that. You can pay it if you want to, but you don't have to. There's other ways that you can do that so that you know, that million and a half dollars can be reinvested back into your business based on a proper, a potential property sale. Just to give a little context of what that was, you know. Okay. So it's challenging that paradigm that, okay, somebody told me I had to do this and I told him, well, I'm not the one in authority here, but I don't think you do, right? Let's look, let's explore. What other paradigms have you accepted as truth that really aren't reality? And what are they costing you? In this instance, it was clear it was a million and a half dollars for other people. It might not be so clear, but at the same time, you know, if they've come to accept that they can't feel good when they get out of bed in the morning, what is that costing you, right? If you're dealing with a weight on your shoulders that you can't manage and you get to the point where you think that the only out is to take yourself out of the picture, that's when it gets to be extreme. And that's what I want to help people to talk about, to prevent, to realize that a decline in self-worth does not mean you're worth less. It's to divide self-worth and net worth. Realize as a son, a daughter of God, you have infinite worth. Your net worth can fluctuate. It can go away. You can go bankrupt, but you are needed here. You have a mission. Your value as a person is not reflected by the number on your bank statement. Absolutely. Right. That's just an indicator. We'll work through some of that. Right. There's a reason if your mission is not being monetized, there's a reason for that. Like God sees yourself worth when you start to see it, then you can reflect that to other people and they will start to recognize that by paying you for the services and the products that you provide. That's how the system works. And if it's the system's not broken, 
And it's not so much that we're broken. We just maybe have a broken paradigm about how it works. I think there's a lot of broken paradigms that we don't fully understand. Yeah. Uh, so, it's good that you're challenging these, Brian, challenging the paradigms and putting out other perspectives and striving to, you know, be that maybe out of the box thinker, um, promoting I'm those. I'm not even sure I would know I was in a box. I'm not even <laughs> sure what the box looks like. Yeah, I, I, I get it. Yeah. I, that's just, and, and we're seen as weird, you know, the entrepreneurs are the weird ones. They're the ones that they, we don't fit into the system, but yet, um, I'm so weird. I have never fit in anywhere. So I'm just used to it by now. And that's good. Be comfortable in that, you know, and that's what gives, that's why you have, I think such a following is because you you're, you're willing to own that, that I am different. I'm not trying to fit and tell you what you want to hear, right? I could, I don't know, you know, if you had a parallel and you did one TikTok where you're just going to spout off everything that the media says and everything that trade journals say, and you had yours where you're just being real, I would have to think that one would just be dead in the water and the other would be where you're at today and continuing to grow. I've got, I've got several industry publications scattered around here on my desk and kind of on the floor. There's times where I just want to turn the camera on and go through and read headlines and react to them. Like yeah. <laughs> some of it is just, it's just so I, I, I can't even do one cause I don't want to, don't want to give one away that I just sometimes like some of these headlines are just so outlandish. It's like, are we really, are we, is this what we're really saying right now? Is this what we're really doing right now in this industry? Like, come on guys. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's uh, it's definitely going to be an interesting time in 2023 in the cattle business. And as we move forward, um, I, I, don't, I don't think any of us know which way anything's going to go. I think, the best course of action forward is to kind of keep doing what a lot of us have, what I'm doing, what you're doing, right? Focus on ourselves. Let's fix ourselves. Let's, you know, work on our mental health. Let's work on our connections with other people. And let's work on our connection with the land. And let's take yeah. care of this land. And let's start, let's get back to a place where we have the paradigm we are looking seven generations down the line with the decisions we make on our land. Like when you start thinking about what's this going to look like seven years down the line, when you're holding that jug of Roundup in your hand, you start thinking about it. Or, you, you know, you're picking up that rifle to shoot a beaver that's, you know, that you don't like because it's making life inconvenient. Like, let's think about this. What's this going to look like in seven years? You know, we pave over everything and put up feed bunks everywhere. So we can feed all the cows in the world. We till up all the grass to grow corn. Like we don't think about what that's going to be like in seven generations. We can barely think about what that's going to look like for the next generation. And maybe that's how we get back there by focusing on what are we leaving behind for our next generation and making sure that our children can continue to operate the land and can, can, uh, let me back up. 
that are we need to pass the privilege and the burden of stewardship onto our children and they need to accept it yep that's a that's a whole nother podcast topic but absolutely that's that's being regenerative is not regenerative if the next generation um isn't willing able and skilled to be able to step into it and that's that's up to us right is that why you had nine you just wanted to make sure you had one that one <laughs> it complicates things in some ways it'd be a lot easier if we didn't have to divide it and and that's again that's a paradigm that we have to divide it in a in a in an interview um these ideas don't come from me i think i just get to be the uh the receiver for them but um that that change of paradigm division what's the opposite of division it's multiplication and so what we are adopting is that we're not going to divide the land again but we're going to multiply what we have been given and we're going to trust that um, through our stewardship that if multiple or all of our children want to come back they will have the skills we'll help them to gain the skills so that they can multiply by bringing additional enterprises back to the land base that we have so not dividing it not saying that okay you know each of you are going to get a ninth which would be still a sizable income a sizable gain but what would they have in the end so i'm going to challenge out here I'm going to drag up a Dave Pratt quote, and then we need to wrap this up. Yep. I think he says, fair ain't equal and equal ain't fair. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that is really true. Certainly I'm the youngest of 10. I didn't bring that up, but what are the odds that the youngest of 10 would be the one to steward the ranch that my grandfather and my grandparents and my parents and now us are stewarding. Um, it's it goes both ways right when we started we thought oh how lucky we are how blessed we are now we realize how much responsibility we have and and it's a trade-off not that responsibility isn't for everybody for us we felt it was right but there were times when when we were ready to quit on it when that weight i remember my dad when he stepped away on his first mission he said i don't want this to be a millstone around your neck jared and I thought, how could this ever be? This is what I've wanted from the time I was young. It's all my wife, Selena, ever wanted. I thought, he doesn't understand me. But about a decade later, I felt that millstone dragging me down. And there came a day when we thought, you know, maybe the best thing is to sell it. And if you're familiar with Bud Williams' principles, every day you don't sell is the day you buy. Yep. And the day I bought the ranch was at an executive link meeting in washington at one of our board members uh ranches and i defended that decision to them that i know what it costs i know what the work is going to be i know what my commitment level has to be and i choose today to buy the ranch now you guys help me make it profitable that was a turning point for me that explains why i never met you at any el meetings yeah we were in the boise um Boise chapter and I'm sure we were probably at the same place maybe in Laramie or somewhere but I've never been to never been to a big one in Laramie okay my dad's been a couple times but I I never could get away to get to a big one in Laramie so 
I went the first time in 06 in Colorado Springs and Dave Pratt taught that one. And then I went again in 19 down in Abilene, Texas. And that was the first one that Dallas did after he bought the school from, from Dave. From Dave. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and we did two years in, uh, in Colorado chapter EL, which the second year of that was more like the, uh, Colorado, Wyoming, South Dakota chapter. Cause we just never had a place to, we didn't have a consistent place to do meetings in 2020 or 2021. So we had to bounce around quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Well, cool. Well, awesome. It's been an honor to be here with you, Brian. I applaud what you're doing. Keep it up. We'll support you and, and in your mission and, uh, yeah, please. Yeah. Don't be discouraged. Even, I mean, it's, it's good. It's good that you have such a, uh, a devout following and, um, yeah, I'm, uh, I mean, I guess I consider you a mentor in that sense that I'm just starting out and you figured out, you've kind of paved the way. And so I can look at what's worked and there's probably lots of pointers. You could tell me what hasn't worked, but, um, I could tell you a bunch of stuff that hasn't. Yeah. And that's valuable. Right. <laughs> and that just like I, just like I shared with, um, those that are that individual, when they said, should I jump into this direct marketing thing? I said, well, you know, let's just take a step back and let's make sure it's the right fit for you first, you know, before you add fuel to this car and drive off a cliff. Right. That's uh, so, so thank you. It's been an honor. All right. So other than ag steward.fyi resilient rancher on TikTok, where else can folks find you on the internet? interwebs um yeah so be looking for the profitable steward podcast um hopefully by the time this airs that will be out also we've got the url reserved and that is a podcast name that is available um so we're getting the intro the outro and all the other ins and outs which i didn't realize you had to do to make a podcast so that's that's coming um jared yeah, maybe you don't have to do. Maybe I'm listening to the wrong people, right? <laughs> Sometimes you just put it out there as imperfect as it is. And that's certainly Ag Steward. You know, it's not perfect. It's a, it's a, the website, the website is solid and we can definitely stand behind what the services we provide. Just get past if it's a little clunky and not super uh, streamlined. So uh, Jared at agsteward.fyi is a good email address. And, um, yeah, definitely reach out. If this message resonates to, with you, um, whether it's about emotional health, whether it's about building yourself as a steward, uh, just email that jared at agsteward.fyi. We're going to have more of a funnel for people to come through as, as this evolves with, you know, like questions of, is it a right fit to look into coaching and to mentoring one-on-one -on -one with me and for your business? But, but for now, um, it's just, it's a call. It's about 45 minutes. We sit down and, and we talk about what your vision is. If you don't have one, I'll push you a little bit to create it and just say, where do you want to be? And then we make sure it's the right fit for both of us before we work together. Cause I want people that are really committed, um, that have a direction. And if it's not super clear what that direction is, we'll refine it. But that commitment level has got to be there for us to work together more than the money that it costs to do it. It's like, for many people, that is a higher cost. It's just like saying, okay, I'm all in, just like I did with the with my EL group. Like, I'm all in. Let's stop looking backwards. Let's just look forwards and let's make it work, make it profitable. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, I think, uh, I think I'll about wrap it up, unless you got anything okay. else. I think that's good, yeah. 
I mean, we could probably go on for days, but I know we've got a, we've gone for two hours and this has been a great conversation. So yeah, yep. we'll go, we'll go feed cows and plow snow and do all those other Whitby things that we get to do. Um, and then come back and do a little what be and that's actually what we're what we're going to squeeze in before i go feed cows is a quick what be meeting with my son and and my wife plan one tomorrow and i have one on thursday <laughs> hey good for you good for you you're taking it yep two mornings a week is what dave tells us two mornings a week keeps the i don't know what is that there ought to be some saying keeps the keeps the two, banker away two what bees a week keeps the bank keeps yeah Two watt bees a week keeps the banker away. Something like that. Keeps the banker happy, maybe. Maybe you don't want him to keep away, but they can be your partner rather than a rather than that dreaded phone call. It can be like, oh, I get it. Yeah. You know, what what opportunities can we explore together? That's a good place to be with your bank, and I think that's a good place to leave it. So Jared, thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it. Uh, y'all don't forget to go check him out over at agsteward.fyi and um I think that's it. Have a great week, gang. Yep, thanks, guys.